You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 6th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, following Zelensky's no-show on a Zoom call with US lawmakers, a high-level Ukrainian security delegation will be meeting their American counterparts, hoping to unlock more funding for the war. Washington has said that it will be imposing visa bans on people involved in violence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. We'll get reaction from Human Rights Watch. We'll be in Dubai for the latest from COP28, hear about the political work of the first transgender winner of the prestigious Turner Prize and... Now it's remaining one of the major symbols of the city, you know, the tower, no? We'll learn about efforts to save a leaning tower in Italy. No, it's not Pisa. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. U.S. aid to Ukraine has been held up for weeks in Congress. President Vladimir Zelensky was meant to join a Zoom call yesterday to update senators and and encourage a procedural vote expected today on an emergency aid package that included more than 60 billion U.S. dollars for Kyiv. But he cancelled. The briefing went ahead anyway, but became very heated. Our Washington correspondent Chris Chermak has more for us. Chris, what happened at the meeting? So this meeting between senators really did turn quite feisty. And essentially this turns, if you want, in a way less about Ukraine and more about the U.S. border. This is really what derailed the meeting yesterday and also stopped Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky from attending. This was meant to be a briefing about Ukraine, about the needs for Ukraine with U.S. generals and Zelensky um, speaking to U.S. senators about the need for funding. Republican senators were angry that the meeting had nothing to do with the U.S. border, with border security in the United States, which for them is is sort of part and parcel of these talks about a supplementary budget for Ukraine, Israel, and, and other national security or foreign security priorities. So they've been pushing for actual changes to how the U.S. border is secured to immigration policy, reforms along those lines as a condition for Ukraine aid. And that's really what this entire uh, briefing yesterday collapsed on. And did Zelensky know that the border would come up? Is that why he pulled out or were there other reasons? He did not. So this was essentially he was advised by Democrats to pull out as well because of the fact that this meeting had derailed the way that it had. He had expected, as Democrats had expected, that this would be a straightforward briefing just on Ukraine. When it became clear that Republicans wanted to talk about other things, that's when it it, it sort of became clear that there was no point in continuing the meeting with Zelensky as well and actually talking about Ukraine. Because this funding is contingent on those border problems. This funding is contingent, if you will. That's what Republicans are saying. A Democratic majority, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that many of the demands that Republicans have, particularly on immigration reform, so it's not just about money for the border, it's about specific reforms, restricting asylum seekers, that kind of thing, are non-starters. That's how he's put it specifically. That's why these negotiations, which at one point seemed relatively hopeful that there might even be some kind of deal 
this week on funding have basically collapsed at this point, and there is going to be a procedural vote today, but Republicans have been directed also by their leader, Mitch McConnell, to vote against this package at this point because it does not include the immigration reforms that they want. So there are meetings between top Ukrainian national security officials today with their US and their NATO counterparts. Tell us more about who'll be there and what's on the agenda. Yeah, so this is a big meeting. And if you want to link it with what's happening in Congress, this meeting, the the U.S.-Ukraine Defense Industrial Base Conference, as it's called, it's a closed door meeting um, that essentially involves coordinating military production in the U.S., Ukraine, but also European uh, leaders will be there as well, where officials will be there. Andriy Yermak, the chief of staff of Zelensky, is here. Defense Minister Rustem Umarov is here. The U.S. Defense Minister will be attending. And you'll have about 350 U.S., Ukrainian, European government and defense officials. And the defense side, the defense executives that will be there, the national armaments directors, that's kind of the crucial difference here. This is essentially about trying to help Ukraine defend itself, to rebuild its own military industrial complex to improve its 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 abilities in that in that sense and where the US where US companies potentially can help Ukraine do that. Because of the fact, if you will, that because budget, uh, you know, these dis- these negotiations on the budget are stalling in the United States, Ukraine is going to have to defend itself more. So on the one hand, this is a long-term thing. This is about long-term planning for how to improve production in the in in Ukraine. But it's it it will be key for Ukraine to be able to stand on its own feet if the if this war is going to continue for you know years going forward. Mm. As you say, there will be uh, European industry and government representatives there, also a lot of U.S. Uh, security officials. Uh, is this in part because some of that funding, in fact, a great deal of that funding, is actually spent in the U.S. and in Europe uh, in terms of, of of procuring weapons, but also making them. Absolutely. I mean, this is part of the argument, if you will, that U.S. supporters of Ukraine have made, how the debate here, if you will, has pivoted. The Defense Department has released statements kind of looking at how defense procurement, how the industrial base in the U.S. has been improved as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. 37 U.S. states are contributing to Ukraine through production, replenishing U.S. stockpiles that have gone to Ukraine for Ukraine's defense against Russia. And you've had various senators, you know, supporters kind of pick up on that argument, if you will, that this is really helping their own countries, helping their own economies because it is building up, um, you know, because it is essentially spending within Europe and the United States. And beyond that as well, it's also building out long-term industrial bases in the West. These are sort of creaky industrial bases, if you will, in the U.S. as well, because frankly, there hasn't really been a war that, you know, to this scale that the U.S. has had to participate in, in terms of also just simply supplying weapons. So Pentagon officials have also seen this as an opportunity for them to improve their own defense industrial base because of the war in Ukraine, learn lessons from that on how they can be more faster in terms of supplying weapons in the event of future wars. So there are very, you know, clear reasons, clear links, if you will, between what's happening in Ukraine and the defence capabilities of countries in the West. And so how significant then are these talks in terms of what comes next for Ukraine and will they influence the lifting of the ban on funding? 
Well, it's hard to say whether they'll let influence the lift uh, on the ban on funding. That's something that's going to happen specifically in Congress. But this is going to be very important for Ukraine, both to build out its industrial base, but also potentially for some of its primary needs, given the defense executives that will be there as well. Ukraine at this point is looking particularly for air defense, rockets and radar systems to detect ballistic missiles. That in itself, if you will, is a shift compared to last year when they were looking for more offensive weapons. At this point, they're looking for defensive weapons given the state of the war. And the other aspect of this is simply getting U.S. companies to maybe join them in Ukraine, uh, whether it's remotely, but simply to get some deals with U.S. defense companies to improve their industrial base. Two European companies are already committed to working with Ukraine, including Rheinmetall in Germany. No U.S. companies have gotten on board yet. So this will be a key question of this conference, whether they can kind of get the the private might, if you will, of the US to join them in this war as well. Chris, thank you very much indeed. That was Chris Chermak in Washington. Now, here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Israeli forces are engaged in intense fighting with Hamas militants in southern Gaza as the humanitarian situation in the Palestinian territory worsens. The UN says 600,000 people in the Gaza Strip have been told to evacuate but have nowhere to go as refugee shelters are at capacity. Peru's top court ordered former President Alberto Fujimori be released from prison, defying a previous ruling by regional human rights court. Fujimori had been serving a 25-year sentence for human rights violations in relation to massacres by the Peruvian army while he was in office. And four more members of the Korean pop band BTS will begin mandatory military service, their management has said. Jimin, Jungkook, V and RM will join three other members of the K-pop group who have enlisted. BTS is currently on hiatus and is expected to reconvene in 2025. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Sophie. The US has begun imposing visa bans on people involved in violence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Attacks by settlers there surged in recent months as Jewish settlements expanded and have spiked again since the October the 7th Hamas attack on Israel. Sari Bashi is Programme Director at Human Rights Watch in the West Bank. Sari, what's your reaction to these new measures? I think it's a good idea. Um, you know, for for decades, um, people here have been complaining about increasingly violent attacks on Palestinians by Israeli Jewish settlers who have unlawfully been transferred to the West Bank. And the United States and other countries should take measures to try to rein that in. Mm. Can you tell us how the settlements have grown over the years? Sure. So the Israeli military has occupied the West Bank since 1967, and quite early on, it began transferring Israeli citizens into the West Bank, civilians. Um, So that's a violation of international humanitarian law, Uh, transferring civilians from the occupying power into the occupied territory is a war crime. In doing that, they have displaced Palestinians, taken over Palestinian land, and imposed a draconian system of uh, physical blocks blockades, checkpoints, and travel restrictions designed to protect the settlers uh, and to also uh, take more and more land for their use. There are currently about 600,000 Israeli uh, settlers in the West Bank, and the Palestinian population is severely restricted from using about 60% of the West Bank, which the Israeli military has dedicated for Israeli military but also civilian use. 
Now, we know there's been violence there for a long time, but it has increased since October the 7th. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so I mean, since October 7th, it's, it's been really the, the bloodiest period of time uh, since um, we've had good data in 2005. There have been almost 250 Palestinians killed by Israeli soldiers and settlers. Among those, eight Palestinians have been killed by Israeli settlers. Um, since October 7th, there have been uh, 318 attacks by settlers against Palestinians. And that ranges from settlers going into agriculture cultural lands, uh, destroying olive trees, going into villages, burning homes, damaging cars, to actually uh, injuring or in some, in some cases killing people. And how much of this is down to settlers and how much is the IDF? So of the 250 people who've been killed, most were killed by soldiers. About eight were killed by settlers. In many cases, the settler violence against Palestinians is state-sponsored. So sometimes soldiers stand by and do nothing while settlers uh, hurt or kill Palestinians or vandalize their property. And sometimes the soldiers actually participate. Part of the problem is that the current Israeli government has made it clear that it views the West Bank as belonging to the Jewish people, and it sees its responsibilities as protecting the settlers as opposed to Palestinians. Mm. So certainly the Israeli authorities have an obligation to protect settlers, and they should do so by safely escorting them back to Israel, where they can be lawfully present. And what role does the Palestinian Authority play in this? So the Palestinian Authority has um, security uh, duties only in a very small part of the West Bank, in West Bank cities, which is about 10-15% of the West Bank, where settlers rarely go. So almost all of these incidents take place in areas where the Palestinian police are not allowed to operate. It's just the army. Um, So they don't play a role at all. Mm. Now, you've talked about those settlers being escorted back into Israel. I wonder what else the Israeli authorities could be doing to address settler violence in the West Bank. Yeah, I mean, but I would just say it again, the first thing to do is to remove and dismantle the unlawful settlements. But beyond that, the Israeli military is obligated to protect um, the Palestinian civilian population. And so certainly the army's job is to keep everybody safe, but to keep Palestinians safe from unlawful settler violence. That's difficult to say under circumstances where the army itself is also engaging in violence, unlawful violence against Palestinians in many cases, and also the, the the bosses of the army, the political leaders, have said that they see their role as being protecting Jewish lives. So that that's quite scary if you are a Palestinian and the only people authorized to carry guns say their job is not to protect you. Mm. Are these attacks always initiated by Israelis or are they sometimes provoked by residents, Palestinian residents of the West Bank? A lot of these attacks take place in villages. So settlers are entering Palestinian villages or in some cases entering Palestinian land. It's difficult to talk about provocation when when people are going into a village and destroying property um, or going into agricultural land and preventing Palestinians, for example, from harvesting olives. Certainly there are cases of Palestinian attacks on Israeli settlers. um, And, you know, that's something that it shouldn't happen. And um, those people should appropriately be uh, arrested because 
Israeli settlers are civilians. They deserve civilian protections. But the way that the Israeli government should protect them is by safely removing them from places where they are unlawfully present. Mm. Even if uh, the Israeli government wanted to remove them, how much control do the authorities actually have? Are the settlers now at the point where they're so angry this would continue whatever happened? Total control. The Israeli military, the Israeli authorities are providing electricity, water, subsidies, uh, roads, protection for the settlers. This is a state-sponsored project. And if the Israeli government made the right choice tomorrow, they could dismantle every single settlement and safely return all settlers back. I am concerned in the interim about the decentralization of the violence because it's gotten to the point where settlers feel empowered to engage in violence on their own against Palestinians. And that is harder to rein in, even if the government wanted to rein it in. Mm. So do you think this visa clampdown will make any difference? I mean, how many of these settlers travel to the United States anyway? And is there any way of, of tracking who is responsible? I mean, who is responsible is clear. The the individual Israeli settlers engaging in unlawful acts of violence are responsible, as are the Israeli authorities who are not arresting and prosecuting them. But I, I don't know how many people would use the visa, uh, the visas. What I can say is it's a really important message. The United States government should do more than just that, but it's a good step in making it clear that settler violence should not be tolerated. Sorry, thank you very much indeed. That's Sari Bashi there speaking to me from the West Bank. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. It's 12.17 here in London. The Global Climate Conference COP28 is in its second week in Dubai. Suzanne Lynch, who's the author of Politico's Global Playbook and an associate editor, is there and joins me on the line now. Suzanne, what were the COP highlights yesterday? Yes, well, um, it has been some progress. Uh, Negotiators have been meeting here uh, pretty much every day. And uh, the issue is that a lot of the big leaders were here over the weekend and then they flew home. But in a sense, once the the high politics got out of the way, uh, negotiators went back to negotiation. What they're trying to do is get a final text with agreement. So we do now have a draft document of uh, what's called the global stock take. And that's a big focus this year. What that is is basically a report card on uh, how countries are doing in implementing the findings of the Paris Agreement, which is now eight years old. And they're coming together now to take stock of that and to see how far track they are off that. And most importantly, and most you know, divisively, um, how they're going to put things back on an even keel. And uh, so that's where we are at the moment. But there's also been a number of other uh, more voluntary commitments made throughout the week, but uh, a lot going on here in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we know that Vladimir Putin is in the area this week. Do you think he might make an appearance? Well, it is interesting. Uh, He has arrived in the United Arab Emirates. He flew into Abu Dhabi Dhabi, uh, airport today, which is not really that far uh, from the Dubai Expo, obviously a different city, but not about an hour's drive really away. Um, So there has been signs of heightened security here. Now, there's a lot of security, obviously, anyway. Um, But no sign yet whether he's going to attend COP or not. Now, if he did, this would be a very uh, provocative move. Um, we have got a Ukrainian presence here, none of the senior ministers, uh, but a lot of uh, the Ukrainians, for example, have a pavilion where they're showcasing some of the effects of, of Russian war crimes uh, in their country. Um, but in saying that, the UAE, the host country of these climate talks, has taken a kind of, like a lot of countries in the Middle East, a more um, 
ambiguous uh, stance towards Russia over uh, their invasion of Ukraine. So, for example, Vladimir Putin is effectively prohibited from con- uh, traveling to a lot of countries because the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has an arrest warrant out for him. Now, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, which he will also visit on this trip, are not signatories to that. So, you know, they don't have to arrest him if he arrives. So I think it does indicate, uh, I think Putin is making a statement by coming here. He does not leave Russia that often. Uh, so the very fact that he's arriving here at such a high-profile time uh, for this country is very significant. Mm. Um, the head of the uh, African Development Bank was speaking about climate change on the continent. Uh, was there any anything of, of, of note there? Yeah, I mean, Africa has got a big presence here. Um, he may, has made the point that African countries, some of the poorest countries in the world, are... Uh, disproportionately affected by climate change. Then, of course, you have got a a huge tradition of fossil fuel use, um, often by Western companies, uh, for example, who've come in and taken those natural natural resources from the continent of Africa. What he's trying to say is that Africa is embracing the green transition, that there is a lot going on in the continent uh, in terms of moving away from fossil fuels towards more sustainable sources of energy. So one example, for example, is solar, for obvious reasons. Um, Africa has got huge solar power and solar resources. Uh, but the uh, African Development Bank is here. It's already uh, got pledges of more than well over $100 million from different investors for a green investment fund. And that will be doing everything from uh, building a new kind of renewable plants to investing in trains, greening ports, those kind of things. Now, he also made the point that um, even though Africa's use now of renewables is quite high, it's a very unstable a source sometimes, and we saw earlier this year, back in August, um, Kenya had a, a power, power uh, cut, one of the longest in their history, because the grid was not stable, because it's dependent on these unstable sources. So he's saying that Africa is not ready to move off gas, for, for example. Um, but yeah, they have a big presence here, and uh, they're also part of this conversation about uh, loss and damage. That's the idea that those who have done the damage in terms of climate change, the big emitters, do need to contribute something to those who have been most impacted by climate change. Suzanne, thank you very much indeed. That was Suzanne Lynch at COP28 in Dubai. Now, the Turner Prize is regarded as one of the art world's most prestigious awards and it's presented to an artist born or working in Britain for an outstanding exhibition or presentation of their work over the previous year. Yesterday, the 2023 prize was awarded to sculptor Jessie Darling. The artist, who goes by male pronouns but was designated female at birth, is the first transgender winner since the competition began in 1984. Well, the arts and culture journalist Amma Rose Abrams can tell us more. Amma Rose, welcome back to the programme. How important is the Turner Prize? Is it as relevant as it once was? Um, I don't think it's as relevant as it was at the time when we would have front page announcements in the tabloids, for example, about the winners and um, huge big calls and protests around who was and wasn't you know, awarded or recognised in the prize. But I think that's just a sign of the times. I think culture is not um, front page news at the moment, but for the art world and the artists that win, it's still very, very, very important. It's our largest art prize in the UK at £25,000. And the alumni of the artists who've won it, are people like Steve McQueen, for example, um, are, are still incredibly impressive and influential to this day. Mm. How is the winner chosen? It's chosen, um, they they select 
exhibitions from the previous year and then commission new exhibitions um, which uh, are shown as a kind of group show around the country. Uh, this year in Eastbourne, next year it will be back in London. And um, it's chosen by a board of people. It's quite a small group of people, like four or five people who select um, the winner uh, based on the previous work that they've done and the show that they stage in the lead up to the announcement. What can you tell us about Jesse Darling and his work? He is a really interesting artist. He deals with boundaries, borders, national identity, power structures, and he deals with it through what can seem like found objects at first. So you will see those who've seen images from the show. I mean, you see kind of like crash barriers and um, flags and kind of trolleys and detritus, what it looked at the first, and ladders that go to nowhere. But they are kind of augmented and twisted and shaped into something that gives them a new meaning. He made a couple of political statements during his acceptance speech. What was it, what, what, what is his, his, his main thrust with that? His main thrust, well, he mentioned Margaret Thatcher and he mentioned the cutting of arts in schools and the kind of repositioning the value of arts as a kind of high-end uh, kind of niche um, kind of uh, occupation rather than being for everybody. And he said in an appeal to the public that he thought that art should be for everybody and everybody should stay aware of that and remember that and remember that they have the right to make art and access art I'm paraphrasing there mm. but it's very much about kind of access and um, invisible barriers to being a, an artist and working in the art world and he also uh, took out the Palestinian flag and showed it but didn't make a kind of verbal comment with that just waved it. Uh, finally Emma Rose was this the winner you wanted to see do you agree with the judge's choice? I Honestly, I really, really like Jesse Darling's work. I also really love Rory Pilgrim's work, who in um, they work with uh, kind of, they do a lot of social practice. So it's work and film and music born out of group work through the pandemic in the film Rafts that was shown, show which I really loved Rory's work. But I'm really, really thrilled with the winning of Jesse Darling because I think he is really tackling um, issues that affect us all and... Um, and are very relevant today. And I think it's great when art hits that amazing kind of like bullseye of aesthetic, you know, looking aesthetically fantastic, but also really carrying a message that does translate and affect everybody. I'm Rose Abrams. Thank you very much indeed. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd you come in here looking like that is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in (laughs) your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 20.00 London time and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts.
finally today to the city of Bologna, where Italy's lesser-known Leaning Tower has been closed to visitors amid concerns it might collapse. The Garisenda is one of the city's two towers, a beloved local landmark built in the 12th century. But an investigation by city authorities found that bricks in the tower's base are disintegrating. Mario Cuccinella is an Italian architect based in Bologna, and he was asked by Monocle's Lillian Fawcett to reflect on the possible collapse of the Garisenda. Well, I, I don't want to think in that something happens, because that would be a... I mean, it's a symbol of a city and the people from centuries, they, they, there remain only two towers, no? But there was a city of towers, so there was more than 100 towers, no? And then was, part was demolished, part was uh, not stable, so the, the city is, is low down, no? Now it's remaining one of the major symbols of the city, you know, the tower, no? Because also one is like this and the other is like this, so we become like a brand of the city. And Bologna is a small city, but it's, it's really attached to the symbol of the city. You know, the arcades and the towers are two. You can imagine Bologna without this. You know, and now it's a little bit of psychological drama now because only the idea that maybe I'm sure it doesn't go fall down, but. The idea that we dangerous for the future of the city lost one of the symbols is creating a sort of a psychodrama, no? Because people are so attached that they can't imagine there be there be a problem. So and now they're talking about how to pedestrianize the zona, the, the city center, how to adapt in the city about these problems. But I think it's good because it's a very dense medieval city. There are too much traffic and it's very chaotic and I think this uh, problem maybe can be also opportunity to make some choice then if you don't have this this urgency you maybe take too long to meet it now this problem and you need to solving so I think it's a it's a challenge technically it's a challenge but I, I believe that Italian engineering because we have so many problems in the existing building, the historical building. There was a, still a very good culture how to restoring or renovating buildings in very difficult context. Like the Pisa Tower was solved by the Italian engineering and, and archaeological people. So I, I'm very confident that we, be, we have the knowledge to do it. How to do it is another story, but the knowledge is there. That was Mario Cuccinella speaking to our Lillian Fawcett. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our studio manager was Callum McLean, and The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.